To be set apart means that you are not alone. You're not alone. You're never alone. You go put yourself out on a boat in the middle of the farthest reaches of the ocean. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. And if you stopped for a moment anywhere and thought about it, you'd be able to remember that. You'd even be able to, I suggest, feel it, not like some sort of like lightning bolt from heaven, right? But, but more of the way that like I remember something and that is a feeling. As I, as I remember that Jesus is God, those thoughts feel a certain way. It may not be what I want, but it's true though, right? So you can stop at any moment and you can remember that you are not alone. And if you say the name of Jesus Christ out loud, it's even more true to your own ears. I promise. And then that might also remind you that you're, you're never alone, not only because God is always with you, because even in the hard times when there's only one set of footsteps, he's carrying you, and that's true. It's not only that fact. It's that the angels are with you too, you know. At least one. And right now, I mean, with all of us in here, there's quite a few more. We're going to call on angels and archangels and all the company of heaven to sing with us as Jesus himself is going to be here hanging out as bread and wine to be one with us in just a little bit. It's kind of cosmic. So again, even if you go out to the farthest reaches of the sea on a little boat, dinghy all by yourself, there's at least one angel hanging out with you. And when you say Jesus Christ, hallelujah, out loud, that angel sings it with you. It's a good thing. It's power, really. The kind of power the world can't know, the world can't believe in. Scientists can't study it. They don't believe it's there. You can't study what you don't believe is there. But you are not alone because you've been set apart to know, to believe that Jesus Christ is there, that he is risen. Alleluia, that he is your God. And so you, just like Elijah the prophet, are never alone not only because God's always always with you, not only because the angels are always with you, but because you're actually never alone as a Christian either. There's always more Christians. And Elijah learned this lesson the hard way, on a mountain, underneath an earthquake, a fire, and a whirlwind. I mean, it wasn't exactly like he felt good this afternoon, right? This wasn't a sipping coffee waiting for the sea and the sunshine. None of that. And what does God say to him when he says, and, and you have to understand Elijah's life, to get his prayer at this point. I mean, he's not lying. He's not overstating the case. It's civilization in which the American government is hunting down and killing all the pastors. And this guy's escaped into the deep wilderness. And he's saying, what the hell is going on, God? And I'm so tired. That's, that's his prayer. And you know that it's a good prayer because God's like, well, then I'll replace you. Yeah. With a guy who wants to be in your shoes and have twice what you have, actually. Again, that's, it's a great lore, right? The lore is amazing. Chase the lore. Uh, but the point here is, is not 
Hazael and how interesting that story is when Elisha meets him eye to eye. What a tale. Uh, it's not the point. And Jehu's, can you, can you drive like Jehu? I've seen the bumper sticker. Um, the point is that for all of the elite that God's going to call to do this or that, to move history forward, there's 7,000, he says. It's, that's a very perfect number, okay? Uh, this is, I don't want to say magical, but symbolic number. I'm not saying that it wasn't exactly 7,000. It might have been, but it might have been a whole lot more uh, because the point of the number 7,000 is holiness. That's seven, set apart like the day of the Sabbath for God's word. Holiness, right? Set apart. Look at that. Uh, seven, and then 10, completion. It's a perfect 10. There's 10 commandments, right? It's how that number works in the Bible. Uh, and then so seven times 10 times 10 times 10, three of those tens, you got a Trinitarian thing going on. So, so I might suggest to you that 7,000 is an early version number of the church of God. And so when he says there's 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed an knee to me, he's, he's got, I got people. I got my people. They're where they're supposed to be. Just like the cattle on a thousand hills are where they're supposed to be. Just like all the money is where it's supposed to be. Just like the broken stuff in your house is where it's supposed to be. Like none of that's outside of God's control. And so, you know, Elisha, your prayer about how you're tired, I get. About how you need help, I get. But no, you're very much not alone. And I'm not going to let you think that for a second. And of course, if you follow, if you follow the end of his life, he goes on this little tour for about three uh, little stops, former schools of the prophets where he's working at. Um, and uh, they won't leave, let him go. They're like following him everywhere. He's very much not alone. But you know, you can feel that way, right? And this is the point of the day for us here at St. Paul. It's like, I mean, if you're not feeling isolated in America today, then you're not in America today. A guy wrote a book called Bowling Alone in like the 90s, and it was about how American culture has nowhere to meet people or care. You can go bowling by yourself. That's America. Welcome to the casino. If you're a Christian, even though it may feel that way, you're still very much not alone. And in spite of the lack of Christianity in anything broadcast by the regime of media whatever, there's a whole lot of us here, maybe even a significant majority of the country, to the point where they're scared of this thing that they call Christian nationalism, which the only people who actually talk like that are like, there aren't any, really. There's a few, and they make noise on the internet. But what they're scared of is the fact that there's a majority of Christians in this country. And if we actually got together and said, stop it, well, then they'd have to listen because they need our money. Now, again, I don't. politics is not the point. Prayer is the point. Knowing that you're not alone is the point. Knowing that you're not alone is the point. Revelation, we're going to look at directly here. Uh, this is going to be on page uh, 1031 of your Pew Bible. Chapter 7, kind of one-third of the way into the book. Pretty famous moment. Not a lot of Revelation uh, gets into the lectionary normally. So if you grew up in a Lutheran church... Revelation was sort of that mystical book that maybe someone talked about or there was a Bible study about or someone showed you a cartoon about or you read the Left Behind series, right, or something like that. Like that's kind of what Revelation kind of is to people. Um, it's, it's just so much more than that. Um, it is a powerful, powerful giving of the entirety of the Bible in the pictures 
of the entirety of the Bible. And chapter 7, which again is the one part that might get in on like All Saints Sunday, has this choir in heaven uh, singing this glorious, well, this is the feast, actually. That's the place you do have this text in our liturgy, a new song, this is the feast. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the choir in heaven, a unnumbered multitude. Can you imagine a sea of people you can't count? I know you can estimate how many people are in the Super Bowl stadium, so we can count that many. So it's bigger than that, right? Uh, how many people would it be before you could estimate them? Well, it's more than millions at this point, for sure, in history. The point is, it's, it's nearly infinite. Only Jesus knows the number of the stars and the sand on the sea and the number of the saved, and there's lots. Now, what I want to show you today is how in chapter 7, this means you're not alone all the way through history with kind of a double power punch of of Revelation-style symbols. All right? So buckle in. we got like 10 minutes of Bible study. Chapter 7, we're going to look at the whole thing here, right? Uh, uh, Excuse me, not quite. Starting at uh, verse uh, verse 4. Well, no, the whole thing, whole thing. Go back to verse one. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. If you ever hear me say four is the number of the world. Well, there you go a little bit right there for you. Holding back the four winds of the earth, right? That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Um, Let's just leave that for another day. But there's a big thing happening, right? Big things happening. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that's the east, right? With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our gods on their foreheads. That's nice. Uh, That would be any environmentalism claim you ever hear is wrong, is what that just said, (laughs) right? Uh, That God is not going to give the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? The four angels that are in charge of the earth's decay and destruction over time. He's not going to let them burn it all to actual hell until all the Christians are saved. So you don't have to worry about uh, climate change so much as litter on Kilburn, Right? See what I just did there? Bring it home. They're not always wrong. They're just making a religion out of it on a world level with a Gnostic that is a, we got secrets you don't have bent to it. And it leads to an ignorance of what's right outside your doorway. And what we want as Christians is to live in our neighborhoods and to love our city, right? That's a side point. We're here to say, okay, who are these Christians, right? All the Christians, verse 4. I heard the number of all the Christians ever, 144,000. And if you're a Jehovah's Witness, that worked as a real good game plan to get you off the ground for the first 75 years. But once you passed 144,000 converts, what do you do? And here you got all sorts of issues with people who want to believe in a millennium being a literal thousand-year reign because the Bible says so. Okay, well, the the Bible also says 144,000 people get saved. You better be a little bit better than the guy next to you in the pew at this point in history. Really, like we're lucky if anybody's getting in, if that's the number. It doesn't sound like grace alone, faith alone to me, huh? Right? So don't read it that way. (laughs) Read it the way that John likes to use numbers, uh, which is to say much more 
And then just sort of what math can do. Not, I know I got a mathematician. I don't want to. But it is limited compared to the word of God, right? So 144,000. Notice he's going to now count them out. 12,000 from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali. Look, it's all the 12 tribes of Israel, right? We can skip right by that and just go on because it's boring. Except it's not the 12 tribes of Israel. It's, it's like sort of them, but Joseph's here. And well, what happened to like Dan? I don't have time to pull that all apart for you. But what I can suggest to you is that this is not a literal thing at all, a literal science, modernism, okay? What this is, is a beautiful picture of what John heard. Don't miss that. Let's go back to verse four. And I heard the number. This is really why we're here. I heard the number. He does not see the number. He hears it. He hears about all of these 12,000. Remember, 10 times 10 times 10, any thousand? is God's perfect completion, okay? Well, now we have God's perfect completion on 12 instead of on seven, which throws you not only to kind of the church in history, but the church actually in history, the Old Testament tribes and the New Testament apostles. Yeah? And now multiplying them together, they're producing rather than just summing up. Yeah, You have all of the historical church on earth in this number, you know, 12 times 12, Old Testament, New Testament, 12 the church, 1,000 God's work, okay? Now, I, that's a lot there. This is Bible study for eight minutes, remember, okay? So what does all of that mean? It means that John hears that the number of Christians is in God's hands, in the structure and order of the church as revealed by Scripture, uh, uh, both before and after Jesus came. And then after hearing all these numbers, verse 9, I looked, he said, and behold, a great multitude of infinite people. Right. Now, this is why we're here majorly for Bible study, to distinguish between I heard a number, I looked, I saw people. So again, I suggest to you the number 144,000 is to give you hope in God's sovereignty over the whole deal. And then what comes next is to see the fact that indeed Abraham will have more children than the sand of the sea. That is the promise being worked out. The stars of the sky cannot compare to the offspring of Abraham by faith through grace under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is risen. So you're not alone. There's a great cloud of witnesses here and here yet still. And how those who die in Christ are connected to our prayers and praise all leave for another conversation. And it's mostly a mystery. But they are connected to our prayers and our praise. They're not just bored in heaven. They're calling out to God for salvation on behalf of all people. This where see Rome. Rome's so weird. They, they steal so much stuff from us. Like they get you to pray to them, right? And then treat them like they're a pantheon of gods. And so we're like, oh, then they aren't there. And that's where Lutherans go. None of it exists. And no confession of sins and all that. We just throw it all away. And that, that's the lie the devil plays. He's, you know, look, stinky bathwater, throw it out the window. And oops, there's a baby in it, right? That's the way the devil plays. You see a witness cloud around you, and you they're going to see this now, not only in the fact that there are Christians in America, but that look at the pews. This is one of three services here at St. Paul. We are by no means the only Lutheran church. We are by no means the only Christian church in Rockford. 
There are so many people around us. And I'll tell you, almost every single other Christian feels just as isolated, betrayed, and lonely as you do. And what can change their life is to meet another Christian who isn't afraid to say, good morning, alleluia, or he has risen without expecting a response because they don't know, right? They don't know, that's us. Yeah, um, They're all around us. I want to contrast this now uh, with our Lord. So I'm not going to take us to the pages of that, that Matthew text uh, that I had read a few moments ago. I'm not sure, you know, is anybody ready for Good Friday at any time besides Good Friday? I mean, you, you come in, you put on your Sunday best, you maybe listen to a little praise music in the car. I don't know, I do, right? And, and you walk in and suddenly Judas is kissing him, right? And like, he's being betrayed at the hands of men. And it's just like, that's a little serious for, you know, we got a game on later, right? I mean, it's, it's quite a moment, that text from Matthew 26. It's quite, quite a moment. Um, I don't want to go through it verse by verse, but I want to highlight that you can be confident you are never alone because Jesus is the actual only guy God ever really left all alone. Even the wicked aren't alone. But Jesus was. That's this the point of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can the Father, who is God, of the same substance, abandon the Son, who is of the same I don't know. I argue with the Greeks if you have to. The point of it all is, again, that, that on the cross, Jesus Christ is so very, very, very alone. And, and you get the taste of this at the end of the text we heard read, where, you know, uh, he, he, first off, the guy grabs the sword. I got I to gotta address this, right? It's probably Peter, but uh, he grabs the sword, and, and off we go. The rebellion begins, and he's so practiced that he misses entirely a guy who's not even a soldier. You know, when, you, when you strike someone, you don't aim for the head. <laughs> and so you don't cut off the ear on accident unless you're an idiot. You haven't practiced. And so Jesus is like, whoa, 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 buddy, slow down before you hurt yourself. And then he, he teaches something very, very profound, though, which is that if you're going to take justice and judgment in this world into the vocation of your hands, then it will be judged. If you're going to pick up the sword, you better know what you're doing, Peter. I got a better thing for you, fisherman. Right? And there is a better way than the sword. That doesn't mean police officers aren't good. They're very good and we need them. So again, that's on the way to Jesus calls out to them. Are you all cowards? It's the dark of night in the middle of a garden after the most holy meal of our religion. And you're here with a mob. I was there this morning in the courts. Oh, but all those people, did they scare you because the majority was not with your wickedness? <laughs> Sound familiar, by the way, right? That's what he says to them all. And then what happens? Everyone who was with him runs away. I mean, that, that last, I'm going to read that part. That's just something else, isn't it? The end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. I mean, Jesus was a man. He is a man. So you, you can put yourself standing there for a moment. You got 12 guys with you. You're out at night, downtown Rockford. It's okay. We're walking the streets. Our mob surrounds. They all flee. And you can feel that, right? And, and it, it, ain't, it, ain't, it isn't what you signed up for when you got born, however that worked. 
It's the opposite of that. And there he is, Jesus, he's doing that. Why is he doing that? And this is the key, so you won't be alone. He didn't have to do that. He didn't need to be abandoned. He needed to feel what that felt like. But he knew that's where you are. And so he took it on himself, all of it, every last inch of it. And he didn't let any of his Godhood make it not hurt. In fact, I would suggest that in every single way, he suffered more than any of us could ever imagine. On every human level, I'm not talking supernaturally, I'm talking human level, that his brain worked better, his uh, endocrine system worked better, so that all that was going on in him was, in fact, as painful, despairing, and awful as it could be, the height of it being he knows exactly what the Bible says, how good it is, and he's watching it all be so evil anyway. And he gets to be the one guy that believes it's still good. I win. I win. Come down off that cross. <laughs> no. That's the God who himself, though, though feeling abandoned and alone as a man was not alone because even though his father turned his back on him, his father still existed. His father had actually declared to him from the beginning, do this for them and it will be awesome. And so he did it. So again, you're then not alone. You're under the God who already went through the grave and alone came out, pulling others with him that day, by the way, uh, in order to pull you out now by trusting him, even though you're going to still die. Soon, later, I don't know. It's going to happen, but you're pulled into trusting him into knowing who the true God is in such a way that you know it's grace that he's about. He's always for you. And, and I've been trying to teach this and demonstrate this for a while now. So take it as you get it. But every single moment of your day, that goes wrong. And out of your mouth comes, oi, or whoa, or ah, or whatever. Every one of those moments is a moment where the broken, fallen universe is reminding you that God always does good. Of course, you have to then tell yourself that because your flesh is like, no, my toe hurts now. But, but the word of God says, your baptism says, it was good. And you can play the game of trying to figure out how. That's fun for a while, like how this might someday, you know, I, I could have driven today and then would have had an accident in the car and now I won't drive. That's fine. But I think it wears out eventually. It's much easier just to believe that it's good. It's much easier than having to justify everything all the time. You are free to trust the grace of God in every moment of your day, that even the worst thing that happens to you will turn into the best thing that could have happened for your faith, especially the faith of yourself and your children on the day of resurrection. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is Romans 8 stuff, and we're going to get to that text in a couple of weeks. For today, I want to cap it all off with another little Bible study. Isaiah 49 is where we're going. Uh, and that is going to be on page number 610 of your pew Bible. We sang this as the introit this morning. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be experimenting a little with some other introits from Proverbs and other places. Uh, places where I think right now, uh, the words that the Bible has are the words that we as a community need to ponder. 
and to live together. And so bringing those forward uh, within the structure of the liturgy, right? We're, we're going to be a liturgical, hymnal-using congregation. That's who we are. That's what it means to be Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, if you're honest with yourself, although there's a whole fight about it. We'll leave that for another time. Yeah? But it's who we are here at St. Paul. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't use the liturgy to teach and to grow our faith in the presence. And so demonstrating that, our introits are going to be from the prophets and the Proverbs for a little while, to, to lift their voices in our midst, right? I can't get you to read Isaiah, probably. Go read Isaiah. Do it, right? Uh, it's a little tough, but I can bring him to you. And so here we are again with Isaiah 49. We're just going to look at verse 16 first, because it's one that if you just are that person who highlights your Bible, well, if you haven't highlighted Proverbs, uh, uh, Isaiah 49, 16, you're missing out on some great Jesus, it's right there on the surface. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Just look at the crucifix. That's you right there going through his body into that tree. He's never letting go. Uh, beautiful stuff. Uh, now, that's not the way prophecy in the Old Testament usually works. That's the way a lot of people think it works. They look for the very specific surface-level, low-hanging fruit. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's very much about Jesus. I just think it's deeper than that. <laughs> it's much deeper than that. But again, highlight it, paint it on your wall, put it on your kitchen counter, see it often. Behold, look, check it out, and write it in your own language. Remember, Jesus Christ has engraved me in the palms of his hands. Like Whatever it takes, put those words before you. It will benefit your heart when you see them again. Now, in their context, uh, verse eight, or verse fifteen, uh, God is speaking to the nation of Israel and Judah in light of their destruction, that they're going to be conquered, and that there's nothing they can do about it. And everyone's pretty much scared they're going to die because many of them will, in fact, die. But He's talking to the believers who know this is because the nation is evil. And they are repentant. They don't want to be evil. They're hearing Isaiah preach. They're following Torah in their town. They're living the best life they can with their neighbors to be the best people they can with their neighbors for the good of the world. And so they're getting a promise from God that, oh, okay, yes, I'm going to destroy everything, but not you. Not really you. And what that means historically is, yeah, indeed, uh, the faithful survived the destruction of not only this time that, you know, and Isaiah is talking about this time Jerusalem was destroyed, but in the New Testament era, when the Christians uh, left Jerusalem before his destruction, same thing, warned by Matthew 24, just reading the Bible and they saw it coming and they left. So God preserves his people through the catastrophe. And this is what, a promise of that, right? So if you can just hear this whole section as a promise that God preserves his church through all catastrophes. And then you can apply it to yourself, that it is a promise God applies to your body through all catastrophes except the one he kills you with, which you know is precious in his sight. You've read Psalm 116. You know it's a special day when you die. It's the beginning of forever. Uh, and, but aside from that, all catastrophes are going to blow right past you and not kill you. And he promises this so that even the one that kills you, which you know he sends to you, you will know is a day of rest of rest. But for now, you have nothing to be afraid of because, okay, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? 
It's a rhetorical question. And you're supposed to say, well, of course not. And if you're a mother who's raised a child, you know, how could you? Uh, uh, remember, abortion. Well, he says, even they may forget. It's the rest of the verse. Yep, they, actually, a, a mother can be that wicked. Yep. But I will not forget you, God says to you, Christian, today, alive, wherever you are. I will not forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What that means is the walls of this church building, the walls of this house the, uh, that you live in, my house, your house, uh, the wall of the city. We don't have a wall, but we got freeways. Yeah, all of it. God's in charge of it. He's got it covered. He knows what he's doing. And he says, your builders make haste. Okay, so Christian, you may know that your house when you tend to it under God's will, when you don't covet your neighbor's house, try to make everything yours, but just tend to what is your own, well, that he builds it for you. Those who help you make haste, they hurry. The answers come to your problems when you wait on Jesus. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste, they go out, it says, right? So when you wait upon Jesus Christ and you renew your strength, it is by, again, waiting until the wicked destroys himself and takes himself out of the game. Verse 18, lift up your eyes around and see, they all gather, they come to you. Okay, so who do you feel surrounded by? Who do you think is out there to get you? They're all gathering around you. As I live, declares Jesus, you'll put them on as an ornament. All your problems, all your fears, all your evils, I swear as Jesus Christ lives, you may wear as a garland of confidence when they're his and not yours when they're his and not yours. You shall bind them on as does a bride. Like a bride in her white dress is you with everybody attacking you. And you're like, bounce off, bounce off, bounce off. I got a shield of faith. I got a helmet of salvation. I got a breastplate of righteousness. And it really is about the words coming out of your mouth. So someone says that thing that you can't believe they said to you. How could anyone say that to you? And you're like, the fear of Jesus Christ is the beginning of wisdom. That's just what comes out of your mouth. That's not what you wanted to say. You want to say, how could you? Or why'd you do that? But instead, it's just the fear of Jesus Christ is the beginning of wisdom. That changes you. That changes the person who heard you. It puts you both in a frame of mind that pursues peace. It is a discipline. This doesn't just happen like magic. You got you to practice reading the Bible, right, and quoting it. But it does open you up that even your enemies and their insults are like a bride's headdress to you when you can see, oh, that was a fool who said that. He just affirmed what I know. Uh, Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who has given me the wisdom to not want to walk in the way of fools. Uh, And this this is yours, right? This is yours. All right, so we also heard read verses uh, 22 to 25. I'm going to read it again here. Behold, I lift up my hand to the nations. I raise my signal to the peoples, right? This isn't about Judaism. This is about Christianity. This isn't about St. Paul. This isn't about Lutheranism. This is about Christianity. This is about the New Testament of Jesus Christ. There is an oath that he has lifted up like a banner among the peoples. It's bread and wine given with his words. And to be very frank, without explanation. Because when you start explaining, you start lying and twisting, and taking away what it means that this is his body. He raises up his signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and their daughters carried on their shoulders. This is about coming to church. 
It's about how God is calling us out of the nations to come to the sacrament of Jesus Christ, which is the foretaste of the feast that is everlasting on the day of his return. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers, their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. That's to say that your enemies, the powers that be, all the men who may harm you, they are nothing to God to the level where you may believe that no matter what they do to you in this life, they're as good as licking the dust of your feet because on the day of judgment, they're going to if they're actually doing evil to you and you're just being a Christian. If you're just being a Christian and they're doing evil to you, on the day of judgment, you watch them punished and it's not bad, it's righteous. And you get to know that. They're gonna, they're gonna apologize. You were right. That's why you don't have to say it now. To anyone, anytime. That on the day of judgment, those who are the enemies of Christ will come to all Christians wherever they have harmed us and say, you were right. Last verse, last bit of the verse, 25. Uh, excuse me. 23. Then you will know that I am Jesus. I am the Lord, right? On judgment day, when all your enemies bow down before you and say, you were right. All those who hate Christ bow down and say, you were right. You will know, that's the promise, we'll have full faith uh, that he is Jesus Christ. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Waiting on the Lord. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He doesn't take it into his own hands. He let it be put into his own hands, uh, but he doesn't come down off that cross. He waits upon his father. And now we are to be like him in every way, to wait upon our Lord to understand our place. There are things he gives you power to do and there are things he does not give you power to do. Do what you have power to do, but do not take what you do not have power to do and understand that most of your fears are about things you don't have power to do anything about. You have a lot less fear if you do what you have power to do and then just you know, go to sleep, sing a hymn. As Luther encourages us in the small catechism. And God is with you then in all of this and you are not alone in any of this because this is the simple Christian life that endures from generation to generation, that passes on to families, generation to generation. And there's no reason Lutherans can't do it anymore, even though it seems like there's a lot of struggle for a lot of Christians out there to remember what family means. And I could go on about that. But I'm going to lead us into next week to close. You are not alone. That's the point today. You're not alone here at St. Paul. You're not alone in your house. You're not alone when you are alone. The angels of God and God himself are with you. Next week, we're going to be remembering, celebrating Michael and all angels. It's a midweek service that's coming to the Sunday on the same day that we're going to be installing our team leads for set apart. Remembering, of course, that the word angel means messenger. And so anybody, you, you are an angel if you speak the word of God in, in one sense of the word. Of course, nobody uses the word that way anymore. And we're going to really talk about that next week. But what does that word mean? Uh, what does the Bible teach us about angels? And uh, of course, then that should illustrate all the more how you are not alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.